Good morning. My name is Dwayne. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we have been talking through the book of Genesis over the last few weeks. And one of the important things that we have to understand about Genesis is that Genesis is a collection of stories that shaped a people. The whole purpose for Genesis, and honestly the entire Pentateuch, was, was to tell the stories that helped the Hebrew people understand who they were. And oftentimes we get confused and we look at Genesis as if we're trying to figure out uh, uh, when something happened or how something happened. And Genesis really is about why and about who. And I want to talk this morning about something I'm calling cycles of redemption because all of these stories in Genesis that we see, there's a similar pattern that happens over and over and over again. And it's a cycle uh, where God steps in and redeems a situation. This was important for the Hebrew people to understand. You know how you, you sometimes tell stories about uh, you know, your family or, or, or experiences you've had. You often tell that story to remember something, maybe a value or, or some sort of perspective that you want to have, or remember where you came from and, and your great-great-grandfather who, who came through Ellis Island and, you know, th those kinds of stories. We tell these stories to remember those things. So the Hebrew people would tell these stories over and over again to remind themselves of who God is and how God works with us as people. So, there we go. So there's this cycle that, that I want to illustrate here. We learn three things from these stories. And we learn a lot more from these stories. I'm just distilling it down. These are the three things that I want to share with you today that I think we learn from most of these stories in Genesis. We're, we're going to be leading up to the story of Abraham and Isaac today, uh, the, the, the somewhat problematic story where God tells Abraham to kill his son. I'll get there. Hang on to that. Um, but these stories were primarily meant to first establish the idea that Yahweh is different. The God of the Hebrew people was different than the other gods of, of other cultures and other religions. And so all these stories have some element that, that shows that, that God is not the same as these others. And then we move forward and we see that people mess it up. All these stories have some sort of component of human beings making tragic mistakes and screwing things up and things get bad. And then guess what happens? Yahweh steps in and redeems the situation. And then the cycle starts over because the next story does that again and again and again. So just to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about, I'm going to recap some of the stories that we've talked about in Genesis over the last few weeks and some that we haven't, but these are just some of the early stories in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So if you remember uh, the creation story and Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God creates something good. How is Yahweh different? Because creation uh, of, of the first few chapters of Genesis comes out of goodness, not like the other stories, like the Babylonian stories of creation, that, that creation was made out of violence and death, right? So Yahweh is different, but people made a mistake. It happens in the story, right? They, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and they make this tragic mistake. But the thing we forget about the story, the redemption of that story, and I love this because it's so beautiful, if you remember, there were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Adam and Eve were not kicked out of the garden as punishment for disobeying. That's an oversimplification that we teach our children, and it's not the whole story. It wasn't a punishment. God didn't say, you disobeyed me, now get out of my house. Like, <laughs> that's not how that worked. God said, now you have the knowledge of good and evil, 
I better protect you from the tree of life because I don't want you to live forever in this state. So the redemption at the end of this story comes that after he drives them out of the garden, he places a, a, a cherubim and a flaming sword to do what? To guard the way to the tree of life. And Keith talked about this a few weeks ago, and we see at the end of the story in Revelation where the tree of life is free for everyone to eat from, and it's so big that it's on both sides of the river, and that tree of life is at the end of the story, ultimate redemption. But God redeems in this story after people mess it up. We even see it in the story of Cain and Abel, the very next story in in Scripture. Well, if you don't know that story, Cain and Abel were brothers, and Cain was jealous of Abel because Abel had a better sacrifice for God, better worship. And so, you know, what do you do when you think someone's worshiping better than you? Well, you kill him. And so Cain killed Abel. <laughs> yeah, go figure. Cain kills Abel, and it's a bad deal. And God says, okay, you know, now that you've done this, I am sending you away. I'm sending you out into, you know, to wander forever. And then Cain gets really scared, and he says, no, God, no. Don't, don't send me out to wander forever because anybody who finds me will kill me. And God says, you know what? No. Cain says, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord, Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. There was redemption in that story. Cain did something terrible and awful, and God still said, I'm going to protect you and keep you from dying. And Cain went on to marry and build a whole city. So there is some redemption in that story. It happens again in Noah and the flood. Another story I just don't understand why we put in all of our children's Bibles. What a horrific thing. God killed everyone on the earth, kids. He drowned them all. Um, this story is interesting when you look at it because there is an element of Yahweh is different. Um, what we think we know from archaeology, um, I realize I'm walking in front of all the words because I can see it flashing on my face. I'll stand over here. Uh, what we think we know from archaeologists, there probably was a catastrophic flood at some point in the ancient Near East because there are flood stories in multiple cultures and multiple religions because when something tragic like that happened, everybody wanted to figure out why. Why did God do this? And it was always some sort of God that, that did it. And in this story, the interesting difference is in, in several of the stories, you know, the gods are they're really petty. And they're petty and they're jealous and they're like, kind of like bad humans is kind of how a lot of these stories work out. And in one particular one of these flood stories that's, that's from around the same time as the, the story of Noah, that, that the, the God decided to flood the earth because he wanted to get some sleep and people were being too noisy, right? Like, I mean, that's the kind of stories we're talking about. So the story of this, of this particular story of Noah, it shows that Yahweh is different. Why? Because Yahweh is upset, not that, that people are annoying him or that he's, you know, petty or jealous or anything. God is truly, deeply saddened at the evil in the world. Things are out of order. People are, are not doing what they're supposed to be doing and the cosmos has, has gotten all out of whack and there is evil running rampant in the world and it breaks his heart. So Yahweh is different and he wants to start over. He wants a new Adam and he finds a righteous person named Noah, foreshadowing of the righteous person named Abraham he finds later, right? So he tries to start over. 
And yes, it's tragic and it's awful to talk about, you know, God destroying, you know, all, all the people and, and killing them all in a flood. But, but the redemption at the end of the story is what the Hebrew people were talking about. Because at the end of it all, God says, I promise I will never do that again. I will not destroy the world. So, so, so when you're sitting around uh, telling this story, if you're, if you're a, 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 a Hebrew person, an Israelite, and you're telling the story, the point of the story is about God's goodness and God's redemption. So we see the cycle still happening. God created something good, people mess it up, and God redeems. And then, even in the Tower of Babel story, we can see a similar kind of a thing. Um, and even, even though the, the Tower of Babel story is probably in the Bible just to remind all of the Hebrew people that they really hated Babylon, <laughs> um, it's kind of like if you were writing the story of Philadelphia, you would have to have a section about how, just how terrible the cowboys are. It just has to be in the story. And so that's kind of what they were doing. It's like, you know, we really don't like the Babylonians, and here's, here's part of the reason why. But, but, but the, the story really is, is kind of about, A, Yahweh is different. How is Yahweh different? What's interesting is that in the Tower of Babel story, people were trying to build something to go up to God. But in Hebrew culture, in, in, in their religion, God had to come down to them. That you couldn't build up to God. And so, so that was something how Yahweh was different. But people were kind of messing it up because they were building a tower to, to try to reach up to God and, and, and become like God. And so what did God do? He, he tore down the tower. He scattered the people and confused their languages. How is that redemption? It's redemption because God was protecting them from doing something that would have been tragic and devastating. I'm going to use a simplistic example. Imagine you've got a young kid uh, and, and your child really wants to get the, the cookies or the candy that's on the very top shelf that you've, you've hidden up there uh, you know, from, from Halloween a few days before. This is not a real story at all, ever. I'm sure it's not. Um, yeah, and, and maybe they, they bring out like their toy box and then they bring out a chair and put the chair on top of the toy box and then they bring out another thing and they put it on top of the chair and they start climbing, right? What are you going to do? Like, no, 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 no. That's going to turn out badly for you. So the redemption in the Tower of Babel story is there. God is saying, don't, 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 don't do that. You don't need to try to build something up to become like God. And that's why he says here, let us go down and confuse our language so they not understand each other. Um, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God is protecting people in this story. Sometimes hard for us to see, but, but, but I believe that's there. So all of these stories in Genesis are about redemption. They're about how God is different than the other gods. And yes, we keep screwing things up, but God redeems, God redeems, God redeems. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about um, the, the story of Abraham and and, and God asking him to sacrifice his child, Isaac. Um, so a few weeks ago, Keith talked about Abraham and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And that covenant involved becoming the father of a great nation. How do you become the father of a great nation if you don't have any children? That was the question. And so when, when God came to Abraham and his wife Sarah and said, you will have a child and you'll be the father of a great nation... Uh, there was no child, and they were really old. They were like in their 70s. And so this was like kind of a funny thing that, I don't know this is really going to happen, and they kind of laughed, but God was like, no, 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 I'm serious. And so this is the promise to to, to Abraham, that that you will become a great nation, but it's going to require having a child. And so they wait about a decade. (laughs) Nothing happens. They, They waited about a decade. Sarah is still barren. They don't have a child. And so Abraham and Sarah don't know what to do. And Sarah comes up with this idea. And she says, you know what? Why don't you sleep with my maidservant and she can give you a son and that can be the heir. 
Now, before you get all creeped out and judgy about that, that was a very, actually a very common practice. Remember, this is an ancient book. It is an ancient story. And the ancient culture that we're talking about, it was not uncommon if a, if a man could not have a son with his wife, if the wife was barren, and that man needed to carry on his family line, which was very important, go forth and multiply, was a big deal, then you might use your wife's maidservant, and then that maidservant would conceive a child, and that would be your heir. And so that was, a, that was actually not the big deal. It, like, when we read that story, we're like, oh my gosh, it's terrible that Sarah suggested that Abraham do this. That wasn't the point of why that was in there. The, the reason that that's in the story is not about that. The reason that's in the story is that Abraham and Sarah didn't trust God to do it his way. And so they stepped in with a DIY moment and were like, I think we can make this happen. Like, let's, let's do it, right? Okay, God's not coming through. It's been a decade. You know, we're not getting any younger, God. So let's go ahead and do this. So sure enough, um, Hagar conceives and that's Ishmael. Um, and they have a child. But that's not the child of the promise. So Ishmael grows up, Ishmael's about 14, and Abraham is now 100, and finally Sarah gets pregnant and has Isaac. And Isaac is the child of the promise. And we're not going to talk about Ishmael. There is redemption in the Ishmael story. God takes care of Ishmael, even though he wasn't the child of the promise. God does take care of him. But we're going to talk about Isaac. So here we have Abraham has received this promise from God, this covenant, and now he's got the child who is going to be the heir and is going to be the father of this many, many nations, right? And so this is it. Everything's all set. And then we get to this weird story where it just doesn't feel good. (laughs) Chapter 22 of Genesis, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Ooh, that doesn't sound like a, a very nice God. We don't want a God that, like, is giving us tests of faith, right? I mean... That's rough. We're going to talk about what he's actually testing in a minute. Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. What a terrible request. We have to understand a couple things. The people who are telling these stories from generation to generation to generation, they understand a few things. They already know that Yahweh is different and it is well established in the culture of the Hebrew people that God abhors child sacrifice. It is well established that thou shalt not kill is a real thing. So, The people hearing this story, generation after generation after generation, wouldn't necessarily be shocked by that first statement because they know that God already does not want you to kill children. That's terrible. Other people do that. Babylonians do that. We don't do that. But the second thing that's on their mind has to do with the exodus. So again, keep in mind, I know that, that, that there's chronology here, but, but these stories were told over and over and over and over and over again, and when they finally got written down, it was probably during the period of Babylonian captivity, which was after King David, which was after Moses 
had led them out of Egypt, which was after Abraham. So all this stuff had already happened. And so they're telling these stories. Now, I'm not saying they're making them up, but, but they're writing them down to say, remember what happened. And so the people hearing the story would have remembered that when the Israelites, the Hebrew people, were in Egypt, in captivity, in slavery, God delivered them. And if you don't know the story, it was kind of a cool thing. Watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And there's like all the plagues, right? There's these, all these plagues that come, and there's frogs, and there's locusts, and it's oh, awful. And the last plague is the plague of the firstborn, where God says, I'm going to come through Egypt, and I'm going to kill every firstborn. But here's what you do, Hebrew people, Israelites. Here's what you do. Instead, you kill a lamb. And you take the blood of that lamb and you paint it on your doorposts. And when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your house. And your firstborn will be spared. That's why they celebrate Passover to this day. That's what Passover is, right? So what does this have to do with this? Well, in, I think I put it on the, on the PowerPoint. In, in Exodus 13... God is giving some instructions about how to remember this and how all of this works. And the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. After the Lord brings you, this is later in 11, after the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath, to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Let's see if we get what's going on here. God says the firstborn belongs to me, every firstborn. Even a donkey, eh, God's like, I don't really want the donkey. The donkey's unclean, and you also probably need the donkey to like plow the fields and stuff, so you have to do something special. What do you have to do? You have to redeem it. How do you redeem it? With the blood of a lamb. Redeem the donkey with the blood of a lamb, and also redeem your firstborn among your sons. The Hebrew people hearing the story of Abraham sacrificing his firstborn son would have already known oh well, there's going to be a lamb there's going to be a lamb to redeem the son that's how this works we know that because we're hebrew people so the question is where's the lamb guess who asked that question <laughs> isaac asked that question <laughs> right so abraham's like okay i'll do this god and so so he gathers up the stuff and they start walking uh, with servants and then they get to a certain place and he says to the servants stay here and then Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife and as the two of them went on together Isaac spoke up and said to his father father some tension in that probably what's going on here but here's the question father yes my son abraham replied the fire and wood are here isaac said but where is the lamb for the burnt offering you see i think even isaac knew well this is what's supposed to happen there's supposed to be a lamb i'm the firstborn this is the redemption ceremony you're going to sacrifice a lamb so i don't have to die it's, you know where's the lamb dad 
So Abraham's moment of faith is right here. The next thing he says. Because you know what he says next? He says, God will provide the lamb. God will provide the lamb. Because later in the story, you know how the the writer of this story ends it. He says that Abraham renamed the place God will provide. God's provision is the point of this story. God provided the solution to the problem. Remember, years before, Abraham didn't trust. And he tried to figure out his own solution to the problem. By having a child named Ishmael. He didn't really trust. But in this story, the faith of Abraham was that he trusted, not, not that he trusted God to save his son, that, 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 that God will protect me and somehow keep me from killing my son. It was that God would provide what was needed for the sacrifice. God would provide for the redemption of his firstborn son. And that was the story. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb, the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. So they went up, they arranged the wood, (laughs) he tied Isaac, must have been lots more questions. If you know any teenage boys, he's probably like, really dad, where's the lamb? (laughs) This is getting kind of weird, why are you tying me up? Where's that lamb? He even goes so far as to pull out the knife, right? And then what you, if you know the story, you know. He heard a voice from heaven. Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your only son. Then he looks over and what does he see? He sees a ram caught in a thicket. So he takes the ram and sacrifices it instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord will it will on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. That was the test. That was what that was what God asked. Later in Exodus 13, in days to come, when your son asks you, What does this mean? Say to him, With a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. It's to remember that God is a God of redemption. To remember what God has done. And as I think about what this means for us, God is a God of redemption. We see these cycles of redemption over and over again in early Genesis to set the scene for the rest of the biblical story because ultimately what happens is people keep messing up and just go ahead and read through the prophets and you'll figure that out really quickly. People keep messing things up and Jesus is the ultimate redemption. Those words are sounding familiar maybe. I used to sing a song when I was a kid. I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. I don't know that I really knew what it meant. I sort of kind of knew what it meant. That's what it means. God required the firstborn male to be consecrated to him, and in order for that male to live, you had to redeem that firstborn by the blood of a lamb. Jesus was the lamb of God 
who redeems us. Paul talks about it in Ephesians. He says, we have redemption in his blood. Paul talks about it in Romans. Um, there's, a really, there's a really famous verse in Romans, Romans 3.23, that people read a lot. Um, I like 3.24. Uh, it comes right after it. It's Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God goes on to say in 24 and are justified freely justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus so we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb we've been redeemed because of what Jesus has done so what does it mean for us to live as people who are redeemed and to follow a god of redemption i think if we're going to follow a god of redemption we have to look backwards and we have to look forwards. We look backwards at our God of redemption and we remember the things that he has done. Just, just like the Israelites, the, the Jews to this day who celebrate Passover, they are remembering that God has redeemed. We look back through history and we see what God has done. We look back in our own lives. There's probably something you can think of right now where you look at a situation and you say, wow, that was a messed up situation, but God redeemed it. There was some good that came out of it. And we celebrate those things. To be a people of redemption, to serve a God, to follow a God of redemption, we look backwards and we remember what God has done. But we also look back in our own lives. Sometimes you don't like what we see. And we remember that God has redeemed us. There is nothing that we have done that is beyond redemption. I have a friend who likes to say, you are not the worst mistake you've ever made. Whatever that is that you've done, that does not define you. That is not who you are. So we, we, we remember that we serve a God of redemption who can redeem anything that we have ever done. That we are justified freely by his grace, right? That's what I just read to you. We are justified freely by his grace because of the redemption that has come through the blood of Jesus. So to be a people who serve a God of redemption, we look backwards and remember those things and we understand that we are not defined by our failures. But we also look forward. To be a people of redemption, we look forward. And I think the obvious thing there is to think about the ultimate redemption of all things. I mentioned the book of Revelation earlier and it's part of our faith that we think about ultimately how one day God will redeem all things. I do think we've had a little bit of an overemphasis on going to heaven when you die as the ultimate goal of our faith. And I think the reason we overemphasize, the reason I think that's an overemphasis is not that it's untrue, but that if we only do that in our conversation, in our theology, and in our faith, if we're only concerned about who goes to heaven when they die, then we start to categorize people. Because that's what human beings do. Because evolutionarily, we had to be able to categorize a bush and a bear so we could be safe. And we would know that we hide in the bush and run from the bear, right? If you try the other way around, it really works out bad for you. So categorizing things is what people do. And so when we talk about going to heaven when you die, we start talking about, well, who, who goes to heaven when they die? And by extension, who doesn't go to heaven when they die? And we start to categorize and say, well, these people are in and these people are out. And that becomes the primary focus of our faith is determining who's in and who's out. And how do you determine who's in and who's out but draw a really thick black line and say, this is the line between who's in and who's out. And that's not what we need to be focusing on. 
So ultimate redemption, yes, it is part of our faith, and it is something that we hold on to, and there are days, believe me, there are days when that's all we can even hope for, is like, you know, at the end of all things, Jesus is going to come, and all things are going to be set right, and that's all I can believe right now, because everything feels so heavy and so wrong. Sometimes that's all you can do, and that's okay, because that is true. So we look forward to the ultimate redemption of all things, but if we really believe God is going to redeem all things and is redeeming all things, then we as followers of Jesus must participate in the redemption of all things right now. We have to live as people of redemption and we have to be the ones who, as we pledge to follow Jesus, we are joining a team, folks, and we are saying we are part of this Jesus movement and we are part of the the answer, the redemption of the world. So, We work to bring peace and shalom into places where there is brokenness and pain. We work to bring light into places where there is darkness. We work to bring justice into places where where there is injustice and suffering. That's what we do. As a people of Jesus, as a people who serve a God of redemption, we understand that we are part of that redemptive process. And we are not limited and bound by our past failures either because God has redeemed those. So through the power of Jesus, we actually do get to make the world a better place. Isn't that cool? We don't have to wait for Jesus to come and redeem everything because we can be part of that process right now. Every relationship that you work to heal, every person who's suffering that you help to bring wholeness, Every person who has a need and you strive to meet that need, that is bringing redemption. So these cycles of redemption continue. God does good things. People mess up things. And God redeems those things. But we get to be part of that cycle in the redemption part of it. Yeah, we mess up things too. And sometimes we need God to redeem us and we need other people to help redeem our situations. But we also get to help be the redemption for other people. That's what Jesus has called us to. We serve a God of redemption. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the redemption that you have offered. We sang this morning about the Lamb of God. We sang this morning about you dying in our place. And as we understand the Hebrew mindset of redemption of the firstborn, we, we just thank you and we appreciate the beauty of that. Jesus, I want to ask that you give us the strength, that you remind us that we are part of the redemption for this world, that, you, that we are part of the answer to people who are suffering and hurting and experiencing brokenness, loneliness, pain. That we can bridge that gap, that we can be part of the redemption. Help us to remember tomorrow, this week, this month, that that's what it means to follow you. Guide us and lead us. In your name we pray. Amen.